As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm David Mollison from the Evening Standard. Follow the leader or hit subscribe and you'll get our news, analysis and commentary every day at 4pm. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcast too. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is the leader. So before he packed off for that dinner with EU President Ursula von der Leyen, Boris Johnson was in the House of Commons for PMQs, where Brexit was a key question. Well, I, 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 I thank my right honourable friend, and he's, in, he's entirely right that uh, a good deal is still there to be done. Bullish to the end, then, but the end is apparently coming. December 31st looms, and while there are hushed whispers of deadline extensions, if you ask in the right dark corners of Westminster, officially, the game is over on that date. The Evening Standard's Jack Kessler is with me. Jack, our editor-in-chief George Osborne pointed out in his column this week that in a way Brussels has already won. They've made these negotiations so hard, surely no other country would consider leaving the EU. I think that's right. I mean, and, and that was partly the point. I think the thing to understand is that, you know, the European Union is a trading superpower and in trade size matters, so to speak. And it was always therefore going to be exceptionally difficult for a mid-sized nation like the UK uh, to even fight the EU to, uh, to a draw. But there have been some agreements. I mean, we've been talking a lot about all these sticking points and the, the Brexit deadlock, but some things have been agreed, some important things like uh, Northern Ireland. Yes, so uh, Michael Gove got to take a little bit of a victory lap in announcing the arrangements for the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a really big deal because, as listeners and readers may be aware, there have been issues between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland in the history of uh, the island of Ireland. And um, the Northern Ireland Protocol being agreed is is what's allowed for the um, specific and limited breaches of international law to be removed from the internal market bill. The question, I think, remaining is... Do we take 
the agreement on the protocol as a sign that a deal is possible on the main free trade agreement? Or do we interpret it as sort of that plans are being finalized for no deal with Northern Ireland sort of being tick boxed and um, sort of the, the, the other constituent countries of the UK now sort of being set for the hardest of all Brexits? So if we can make some agreements, why are these negotiations so difficult is it just the policies is it just what the uk is asking for or are there personality issues here what's making it hard well i've never personally negotiated with boris johnson but i i from a distance he seems quite the slippery character but but i think there are a few things at play first of all from the european perspective and sometimes i think we forget in this country that there are two sides to this negotiation they are not prepared to give the same trade deal to us as they were to Canada, for example, because Canada is really far away. You can actually see bits of the UK from bits of France um, on, on, a, on a decently clear day. That is not the case for Canada. And that's why the level playing field has been such a big deal, because the Europeans, alongside virtually every breathing economist, believe that geography matters when it comes to trade and the fact that you know the uk is physically geographically very close to the european continent means that different rules need to be in place against uh, compared with canada as i said you know it's about three thousand miles away and that's why um, no matter how many times you know david davis as brexit secretary would say canada plus 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 you know it was never on the table okay jack i'm gonna have to put you on the spot here will there be a deal this week next week before december 31st well, I think what we know is that um, any any deadline is not a real deadline. Um, and, you know, Thursday with the European Council meeting was meant to be the absolute deadline. So I'm not going to answer your question because I don't want to look ridiculous. But the, 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 only, the only certainty is that whatever happens, whether there is a deal or not a deal, I mean, you look at what the OBR predicted earlier in the year, that even with a f- typical free trade agreement with the EU, um, the UK would see over a 5% loss of GDP over 15 years. So for those who, who like the idea of, of getting richer rather than poorer, you know, a deal's better than a no deal, but frankly, it's not a patch on single market membership. You'll get more Brexit analysis and coverage in the newspaper and at standard.co.uk. Follow our live blog for breaking news now. It was meant slightly ironically the book. The book of that title had oh, the sort of cartoonish 50s, pictures of sort of people holding apple pies and doing high kicks. It was not meant as a sort of back to the kitchen manifesto by any means. Nigella Lawson talking to the Economist Asks podcast about her 1998 book, How to Be a Domestic Goddess. The TV chef's been ladling up the irony for decades, it seems. Her latest series had already given us the double buttered toast, now it's the microwave sending social media into a spin. I do say it like that, she's since tweeted about her version of microwave, but not because I think it's pronounced that way. That clip at the beginning was from Anne McElvoy's exclusive interview, which you can get on Economist Radio, and she's written about her chat with Nigella for the Evening Standard. And something I think stands out in that interview is that Nigella seems to consider herself a little bit apart from the food world. She's a writer who does cookbooks. I wonder if that's why she seems to take a bit of pleasure in the occasional wind-up of that world. I think Nigella Lawson 
enjoys provoking a conversation. And it's always worth remembering that she's a journalist, really, rather than a chef by background. And she trained as a literary journalist. And I, I know this, not least because I used to run a, a restaurant column by Nigella Lawson when I was at The Spectator. And I think she's always taken pride in words and the ability of descriptions and words about food to start a conversation. She's very, very savvy, you think, about doing that, whether it's micro or whether it's the double buttered toast. These are kind of journalistic ideas that she enjoys then presenting in that very relaxed, very alluring way that she's perfected for television. And yet she seems to be actually in real life quite a charming woman. You write in your column today, actually, Anne, that one of your first roles where you were talking about working the spectator there, you were asked to fire her. Yes, I, I go down in history as the woman who was sent out to fire Nigella Lawson. It was a, a, a great move for a rising newspaper executive. No, it was quite simply in the days, I think, when a particular view of food writing or writing about restaurants, it was emerging. Nigella Lawson was very much at the forefront of giving it that va-va-vroom that it, it sort of got from the, the, the late 90s onwards in Britain. But yeah, there were certainly were editors who just said, well, oh, we don't need any more of this stuff. You know? So that was my job. And I was uh, sent out to have lunch with Nigella Lawson in Harvey Nichols, I remember. And she said, oh, I know exactly why you're here. Let's just enjoy the lunch, which I th- always thought was the ultimate uh, grace under fire, which we should all learn from. Uh, if only newspaper... Expense accounts could still let us go to Harvey Nichols for lunch, and that would be great, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, David, those were the days, right? Those were the days. I remember them just as fondly. (laughs) But even though she might consider herself still apart from the cooking world, she clearly loves it. And she seems to be, in the interview that you've done with The the Economist Asks, she's very concerned about how COVID-19 and the pandemic is affecting the restaurant world, isn't she? Nigella Lawson's often thought of as being in her kitchen at home but actually she loves restaurants as well and she always has and she's written about restaurants she likes going to restaurants she has a lot of friends in the industry and she said on our podcast I'm heartbroken that restaurants have suffered such a lot I think it's terrible and they should be more supported and what she means by that she goes on to explain if people want to have a listen she, she basically feels that restaurants are going to need more of a break in terms of their rent their relationship with landlords and they're going to need something that is more structural to see them through the way this crisis is now waxing and waning and the tears are coming and and going but there's no doubt about it that she really cares about it and she's thought about it and that was something I hadn't necessarily expected her to sound so impassioned about. Yeah and she's been spending lockdown um, alone hasn't she but uh, I'm wondering if I mean, have you yourself been inspired by her to to do a a big Christmas meal this year? And even with our vague rules that we have over Christmas period this year? The Nigella interview reminded me that I need to get more serious about my Christmas intentions. And of course, I think she aspires to to a lot of dishes and cakes and baking. I'll probably do one. She'll probably do about seven as far as I can gather. Olibollen and apple flappen. She she would like us to try their Dutch donuts and cakes. I might try one of those. And she also reminded me to brine the turkey, which I did one year and you stuck it in a laundry a basket, no, not basket, a bucket, a laundry bucket outside, clean one, um, with lots of great brining stuff in it. And then we had to try and worry what would happen if the local foxes got to it. So it felt like.
like a bit of a faff, but it was an amazing turkey. So I was reminded that I must charge someone in my chaotic family with the job of turkey brining. And I recommend you do too, David. You can read Anne's piece in the newspaper and at standard.co.uk. And that's the leader. We're back tomorrow. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.